Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people onward in their Jesus journey. If you didn't know, I really love Jesus. Do you know why? Because he loved me first. Oh, come on. So if you're new here, if you've never been here, if you're like, oh my goodness, these guys are a little exuberant, we are. And I would welcome you, if you don't know Jesus, if you're online, you're sitting in the audience this morning, I would welcome you to actually say, Lord, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? There's so many times that we don't let God be God. We don't have to control him or figure it out or plan it all. No, no, no. Just let God be God. And if you're here and don't know him, go, Lord, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me and take your hands off of it and let God be God? All right, come on. Okay, I am in um, Acts 4. We are moving through the book of Acts. Um, we, we actually read a lot of the Bible. Um, I'm convinced, and I, I just don't really care much what Michael has to say. <laughs> just the truth of the matter. I'm not interested. What I am interested in who is who? What Jesus has to say, that's exactly right. So that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. And as always, I'm probably trying to get my arms around something that is absolutely huge. Um, but we're in Acts <clears throat> chapter 4. Um, that's New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, um, and then Romans. So uh, Jesus, about two months ago, um, was crucified and then resurrected. The New Testament church has just exploded onto the scene. There's a guy that has just been healed um, in Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up reading in verse 10 and 11. He has just been healed, and he is dancing around, acting absolutely crazy. Like, not so. Going, Jesus, he healed me. He, he's running around the temple, and guess what all the religious church people are doing? They're angry, they're upset, they're pointing the fingers, they're trying to clamp this thing down. And so this huge crowd all of a sudden has gathered around Peter and John, and now Peter um, has been arrested, um, and then he is now speaking. This is the next morning. He spent the night in jail. This is the next morning, and he's speaking to the great um, Sanhedrin, which is like their big... Um, Supreme Court. Now, here's what I, I want to do. I'm going to read this um, Acts 4, verse 10 and 11, and then we're headed towards Matthew 21. Because what I love about what Peter does here is Peter is not quoting himself. He's actually quoting, who knows? Jesus. Yeah, he's quoting the Lord Jesus. And I actually put this up on the screen here behind me. Um, but he is quoting when he, when he says, in fact, let's just read Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. Um, excuse me, verses 10 and 11. Acts 4, verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. So this is the apostle Peter talking. He's speaking to the great Sanhedrin. He's speaking to all the religious leaders. So he's, when he says you and all the people of Israel, he's, he's pointing at them. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. I mean, Peter's not shying away, is he? And he's, in, he's at risk of actually being killed at this moment. That's the, that's the penalty that he could pay for preaching. Very different than the penalty Michael could pay for preaching this morning. Just true. 
Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Okay, what name? Jesus. Okay, so a couple, I'm just going to keep this up here for just a couple of minutes. If you want to take some notes or snap a photo, feel free. But Psalms 118, uh, 22 actually talks about the stone the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. So let's just paint the picture. The stone the builders rejected. Who are the builders? Yeah, yeah, I heard it a couple of times. I heard uh, Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, um, the, the kings of Israel, the rulers of Israel. Okay, so they reject this stone. Who's the stone? Jesus. And we're going to open that up in just a minute. So then Isaiah 28 actually talks about that. Here's some New Testament revelation um, of Jesus in uh, the Gospels as the chief cornerstone. We're going to do Matthew 21 this morning, but it's also in Luke 20 and Mark 12. And then it continues um, in Acts 4, we just read, but um, Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2. And Peter, and who are we reading preaching right now? Peter, that's right. So this is Peter's book. Um, and he actually writes about it in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. So this theme of Jesus being the stone the builders rejected, becoming the chief cornerstone, is what we're going to look at this morning. And Peter is citing, he is standing up in all boldness and authority. He is standing up and he is rebuking the great Sanhedrin. So it's the, he is rebuking all of the leaders, all of the people who are convinced they are right and he is wrong. They want to kill him. They can't figure out exactly how to do it. He issues this scathing rebuke of them, and he's quoting Jesus. So that's where we are headed. So flip over uh, to the left in your Bible to Matthew 21. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we give away study Bibles out there. We also have one-year Bibles out there if you want to grab one. But I'm a paper Bible fan. And the reason I am is because every time I open the Word, I expect that the God of the universe is going to do what? Speak. So I actually preface, most, most mornings when I open my Bible, I read a one-year Bible, um, and I preface it with, Lord Jesus, would you speak to me? Would you convict me? Would you show me? And would you fill me? Lord Jesus, would you speak to me? Would you convict me? Would you show me? And would you fill me? Can you say that? Ready? One, two, three. Lord Jesus, would you speak to me? Lord Jesus, would you show me? Lord, would you convict me? And would you fill me? Okay. So, Matthew 21. So, this is what the Apostle Peter is quoting. Now, in Matthew 21, we're about to see Jesus speak to this same group of religious leaders that Peter is currently speaking to. You follow me? Now, here's how I want you to translate this, because <clears throat> many of us tend to think of God as um, almost like this angry old guy in the sky waiting for us to get it wrong so he can, like, smash us. It's a wrong view of God, okay? It's biblically inaccurate. Um, it, it's not accurate. In fact, even what we just read, you don't have to flip back, but I'm going to, Acts 4, when Peter says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. That is both a revelation that Peter is attempting to convey to the religious leaders, but it's also an invitation into repentance, you follow me? So it's an invitation for them, these religious leaders who killed Jesus, to find wholeness and restoration and redemption and experience the love of God. Follow? Okay, so <clears throat> same group of people now, Matthew 21. Um, I'm going to walk us through Matthew 21, and we're going to start reading in Matthew 21, verse 33. Okay? 
Here we go. Matthew 21 begins, and Jesus is uh, coming. If you're in your phone, too, scroll away, whatever. We go Matthew 21. Jesus is coming um, into Jerusalem, and he's riding on a donkey. Now, I'm not going to read it, but you can sort of scan through there. And what's really interesting is as he rides on a donkey, the people say, Blessed is he who comes on the name of the Lord. Now, any ideas where that phrase that they're saying comes from in the Old Testament? Psalms 118. You, you got to get this. You know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to weave this whole thing together, and you're going to go, oh, my goodness. So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's actually coming down this big, it's really more of a hill, but they call it the Mount of Olives. He's coming down the Mount of Olives, and he's riding on a donkey. Now, first thing we have to do is you've got to get rid of your American view of a donkey. I don't know why, but we think of donkeys like Eeyore. We think of donkeys as negative, and they're, you know, digging their little heels in, and they're a pain, and we don't like them, right? Everybody say, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, in Palestine, in this day and age, a donkey is not a despised animal, but it's a noble animal. So everyone in Palestine would have known, not just Jewish Palestine, but Arab Palestine, all of the Palestinians in this day and age would have known that when a king is ruling, if he is coming, meaning war, he's going to come riding a horse. Okay, like this is, this is throughout history in Palestine. If a king is coming in the name of war, if he's coming to make war, he comes riding a horse. Now, if I flipped with you to Revelation, how does Jesus return? On a horse. However, in Palestine, in this day and age, when a king comes riding a donkey, he is actually saying, I come in peace. So he is declaring, so this very act is actually saying, Jesus is preaching both with and without words, um, sort of a dramatized, um, deliberate reality that is saying, I am the Messiah and I am the King. So when Jesus comes riding over the Mount of Olives on this donkey, he is saying, I am the Messiah, I am the King, I am coming in peace. And the people gather. Does he orchestrate the people gathering? No. They gather and they begin to sing, Hosanna, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalms 118. So Jesus comes riding in um, on this donkey and the crowds have gathered and all the religious people are literally going, he is declaring himself king and Messiah. Crystal clear in everybody's mind. He's declaring himself king. Then he rolls in in verse 12. I'm not going to read it, but you can walk through it if you're in your Bible or scrolling on your phone. Um, in verse 12, he, uh, he goes into the temple and he <clears throat> flips over um, tables. He, uh, he has a whip in one of, the, um, one of the accounts, but he's driving people out. He's saying, my house is going to be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And he like holds the entire uh, temple hostage for several hours. I mean, dead serious. That's exactly what Jesus does. 
He comes in, and if we put all the accounts together, he takes over the temple. Um, He doesn't let people come or go. He drives some of them out of there, and he takes over everything. And so what he is now saying, so the religious leaders are stepped back and they're watching it. So first he comes into the city saying, I'm riding a donkey. I am king. I am Messiah. I am Lord. Then he goes into the temple, and he makes a huge mess of what they have created. And he's essentially saying, the way you've done religion, the way you've done church, if you will, the way you've done all of this is now coming to an end. I am fulfilling the old and I am ushering in the new. And I am the new. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. Okay, so let's keep going. Then there's this really funny thing in verse 18 where Jesus curses a fig tree. What? A fig tree that is not bearing fruit. Who's that a symbol of? All right, in this day and age, the religious, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, the whole lot of them, they're not bearing fruit, and so Jesus cursed it, and it withers and dies. Picture of what's coming. Okay, then verse 23, keep going. I'm still in Matthew 21. They ask him in verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, if you don't understand the the mind and the heart of a Palestinian man or woman in this day and age, you totally miss it. But when the Pharisees come and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? They're saying, hey, you just rode in on a donkey declaring that you were ushering in um, the messianic peace of Christ, fulfilling a number of Old Testament prophecies. So you are the Messiah. And then you went in and held the temple hostage, declaring all of what we have done in, in this rabbinic tradition in accordance with Moses to be absolutely wrong, saying you're doing away with the old and ushering in the new. By what authority are you doing these things? You're some random from some little despised town called Nazareth and all you've ever done is build a few wooden things or stone things and how are you doing this? That's what they're saying to him. So they are looking at him going, I mean, with fear and trembling, they are holding on to their power, their money, their position of influence, their great Sanhedrin, their rulership, all of their stuff, their prestige, and they do not want to acknowledge that this man is Messiah and King. So they go to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus tells two stories. I'm going to go to the second one. And he answers their question with a parable. I love this about Jesus. Because he's going to answer the question, by what authority are you doing these things, with this question uh, or with a story that causes all of them to think. If, If you've heard me preach on parables before, I tend to think of parables as someone who is teaching or telling a story and they like, they're holding a big mirror. So I imagine Jesus, picture a big oval mirror in my hands. I imagine Jesus holding a big oval mirror and you're looking into the mirror and if I angle it just right, you have a view of heaven. The heavens, God. So, so Jesus usually starts by presenting a view of the bigger, um, larger kingdom of heaven. And then at some point in the story, he'll actually twist the mirror every time. And when you twist the mirror, all of a sudden, who do you now have a view of? It's terrifying. It's actually terrifying. And the only response is, yes, Lord. <clears throat> so that's what's about to happen 
So let's pick up in verse 33. This is Matthew 21, and he's going to quote the stone the builders rejected. So Peter is referencing in Peter's invitation and confrontation of the great Sanhedrin and all these rulers, he is referencing back to Jesus preaching this message. I hope I got that clear. Yeah? Okay, so let's pick up in verse 33. Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. This is a cross-reference. I don't have it up on my notes behind me, but it's in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Throughout the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is is, um, often pictured by a vineyard. So listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Who do you think the landowner is? Should I tell you or should we keep going? who planted a vineyard. So the vineyard is the nation of Israel, okay? The vineyard is, is God's chosen people. He loves them. He's selected them. He's chosen them. The landowner is actually God. And here's what I want you to wrestle with as we roll through these scriptures. Who's the hero of the story? Who gets the glory in the story? And we're going to have to think like Palestinian men and women to get it. Okay, so he planted a vineyard. What's a vineyard? Grapes. What are grapes used for? Wine, that's right, Jesus drank wine. John the Baptist did not, just so we couldn't make a law out of either. He put a wall around it, the vineyard. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. And I think in short, what Jesus is saying is God did everything he could for the nation of Israel to make sure they had everything they needed. He cared for them. He protected them. He provided for them. He gave them absolutely everything they needed. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. Does anybody have the King James Version this morning? Yep, what's the word for farmers? Charles? Husbandmen, that's right. Um, Anybody have the uh, new King James Version? Nope, the word there is tenants. And in the, anybody have the um, English Standard Version? I think that one's actually tenants. Excuse me, the King James Version, New King James is tenants. King James Version is wine dressers. Um, yours was, I guess, in a, yours is husbandsmen in the King James Version. But anyway, farmers, tenants, vine dressers, husbandsmen, it's all the kind of the same thing. But then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Who are the farmers? The tenants, the husbandmen. The Pharisees of Israel. Absolutely right. So God came, he's setting up the promised land, he's provided a place. And now, on one hand, you're like, this is crazy. But if we were in Palestine in this day and age, the wealthiest people in Palestine often had um, farms and fields um, that were uh, remote or at a distance from where they were. So it's, not unlo- it's, it's very normal that a landowner would have a plot of land a- over here, and he would live over there, and he rents it out to somebody. And what does that somebody do for him? either pays him or gives him a portion of the fruit um, of what's produced in the vineyard. Okay, so he rents the vineyard to some farmers. The farmers are um, all of the religious leaders, all the leaders of Israel, kings, rulers. Um, It it is anyone who has has really shepherded the people of Israel. Farmers, he moved to another place. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, what's harvest time? 
fruit gets ripe. Abby and I actually, a number of years ago, we got to stay in a vineyard in Napa. Like we rented this little tiny cottage in a vineyard in Napa, and they were in the middle of harvesting and taking the grapes over and pressing them. Just beautiful, fascinating. But that's what's happening here. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants. Now, who's he? That's the landowner. Now, who's the landowner a symbol of? God. Okay, so the landowner sent his servants to the tenants, to the farmers, to collect his fruit. Okay, so who are his servants? So if I flipped the Bible back to the left and I just opened it a random place, okay, uh, I've got Chronicles and I see King David. Is King David one of his servants? Yes. All of the prophets in the Old Testament, all the kings of the Old Testament, the judges of the Old Testament, some of them represented God well, some of them represented God poorly, some of them disobeyed God, some of them obeyed God, but every single one of them is um, a servant um, that God sent to prophetically declare the coming kingdom of God through the person of Jesus. Okay, exactly right. So, Uh, He sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Verse 35, the tenants. Now, who are they again? Primarily the leaders of Israel, but it could also be some of the people that live in Israel. But the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, which fulfills much of the Old Testament, where they would beat prophets or kill them. They killed another. It's said that Isaiah was sawed in half with a wooden saw. And they stone, that's not in uh, Bible, that's a, there's a couple indicators of that, um, but, but that almost surely is what happened. He sent, uh, and then they stoned a third. So they would often stone the Old Testament prophets. Then he, now who's he? Verse 36, God, the landowner, sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Now, if you're the landowner, like, this is really hard for us in America, but maybe, maybe you have a rental house down at Carolina Beach or down at Porter's Neck or something, and if you have a tenant there who has trashed your home and not paid you, and you send someone um, to your home to collect the rent, and they take rocks and pound their head in and leave them on the front curb, what are you going to do? Well, we live in a place where we'd probably call the police, that's right. But in this day and age, was there a police? So what would the wealthy landowner do? He sent servants to collect his fruit, what was his. So God has sent people to collect what was rightfully his, and they kill him, beat him, stone him, throw him out. So what is the landowner going to do? What is God going to do in this case? He's probably going to marshal an army. That's what the landowner would normally do in this situation. He's going to marshal an army of a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand, and they're going to go march on this little piece of property, and what are they going to do? They're done. Like, all the tenants, done. We take it by force. They're over. So, what, though, does this God, landowner, do? Verse 36, then he sent other servants. What is this telling us about the heart of this God? Patient, kind, gracious. He didn't marshal an army. Verse 36, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Now, verse 37 to 39, this is the crux of the whole story. I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Remember, 
Jesus is standing, getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready for the, he's just done this triumphal entry. He's just cleared the temple. He's getting ready to go to a cross, not as a criminal, but with all the regality and dignity of a king. Verse 37, last of all, he, the landowner, or God, sent his son to them. Surely they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, now who's the son a picture of? The Lord Jesus. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. So who's going to own the vineyard? The son, that's right. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I don't even know that I can fully unpack this. I don't even know that I can fully get my Western brain out of its context in order to fully understand the Palestinian context. But what is being said here is, and it's fascinating because Jesus said his call, his, um, what he was sent here to do was actually to glorify the Father. Okay, so the hero of this story is actually not the servants. It's not the people that died or were martyred. It's not even the son. The hero of this story is the gracious, kind, long-suffering of the Father. Waiting, watching, sending, loving, desiring that none would perish, desiring that none would fall away, desiring that all would find repentance, desiring that all would find newness in Christ, patiently loving, patiently enduring. Would any of his, uh, pretend he's the landowner now, would any of the landowner's friends, if he told them this story, have said, send your unarmed son? How did Jesus come to earth? I mean, a baby. Like, all you have to do is drop a baby. A baby is so tender and frail. If you don't feed a baby, if you don't take care of a baby. Like, the, 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 um, the humility um, and the vulnerability that King Jesus took on, stepping out of his position as all-powerful God, taking on our human form, choosing to be born in a country that is being ruled and reigned by the Roman government, choosing to be born in a, or, or grown up at least. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, a despised village. He was raised in abject poverty. And this is the way God chose to send his... You, you, you've got to get through it and all of a sudden get your head around the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the extension of God's heart of loving kindness. He is desiring that no one would perish, welcoming people in, giving them time to change. He is hoping that these farmers and these tenants will actually change. So when Peter, back in Acts 4, is standing before them saying, you all killed this Jesus, you killed the Messiah, Peter is rebuking them, but he He's also entreating them to find the love and kindness of God the Father. 
He is entreating them to surrender their hearts and lives and to find this uh, fulfillment of relationship, to stop laboring under this old covenant mosaic law, all the do's and don'ts that they've made it, and enter into this deep surrendered relationship with Jesus. It's a a similar thing to what we just did with worship. Why did I say, let's do something different to help you engage with God more fully? It is the, it's the call of everything from Genesis to Revelation is this fiercely relational God that wants to walk with you and speak with you and lead you and guide you and fill you and direct you and take care of you. And even when things look bad or feel bad or seem bad or you don't like them, if you will wait and watch and trust, he will work it together both for your good and his glory every single time because this has been his heart from Genesis to Revelation throughout all time. This is who he is. He can't help but be true to his character. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? So Jesus now poses a question to all the religious ones. Verse 41, here's how they answer. He will bring those Wretches to a wretched end, they replied. Now, who are they casting judgment on? Themselves. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. This is a a subset sermon, but there is a question for those of us who are in Jesus of ownership. Who owns your life? You? You? Or him. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? So now here is Jesus. He's taking that big mirror in the parable. So they've been looking at God, God's loving kindness, God's graciousness. And everyone here, they're not like us Americans. They would have known that the hero of the story was God the Father, so, so Jesus is showing them, this. go my big mirror, he's showing them the kindness and love of God the Father. And now here's where Jesus takes that mirror and he shifts it. Have you never read the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected? Now this is coming out of Psalms 118. So just a couple of verses earlier as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, riding the donkey, declaring himself in a dramatic, dramatic way that he was king and Messiah, they are quoting Psalms 118, right? So it's fresh in everyone's mind, and he's now going to quote it again. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who's the stone? Jesus. The builders are all the religious leaders he's speaking to. Rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 43. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Who's you? All the religious leaders. And given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, I want to pause here because there's something I... I, I can't like fully dial this one. So I'm just going to, we're going to mention it and we're going to talk about it and we'll see what God does with it. But anybody know what the word for sun is in Hebrew? Anybody remember that old movie, Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur. Do you know what Ben-Hur meant? Some of y'all probably thought that was his last name. Ben-Hur. Actually means son of her. 
son of her. So Ben in Hebrew means what? Son. Okay, so Ben in Hebrew means son, and stone in Hebrew is E-B-E-N. So Jesus is speaking to all these super educated people. You know, they've got their modern equivalent of like double PhDs in the Old Testament studies. Like they know it all, right? And so Jesus is saying to them, and then Peter quotes it, the unlearned, unschooled, ordinary fisherman quotes it to all of them in Acts 4. And he says, the son, Ben, has been, that you rejected and killed has become the chief stone, Eben, the son of the old, has become come now you ushered in and becomes the son of the new covenant Um, this one that you crucified and killed is the son that's now become the stone of the new covenant and it's like this huge shift that Jesus begins to do in the presence of all these religious leaders and every one of them were quick enough that they would have caught on and gone it's an invitation it is judgment it is discipline but it's also an invitation into the full um loving kindness, grace of God in this moment. Verse 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone, who's the stone? Jesus will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be? Okay, so Jesus is the son that became the stone on which everything is built. Okay, if you fall on a stone, I used to do some rock climbing, I don't do much anymore, but I I used to. If I throw myself on a stone, it's an act of my own will and volition, correct? If a stone falls on me, it's not much of an act of my own will and volition, is it? So what I want you to see here is Jesus is actually beginning to say, those of you who choose to willingly surrender, go back to our little phrase that we even built Saltbox on, to lead people like you and me to become fully surrendered disciples of Jesus, to lead people to throw themselves on the sun that became the stone. You hear me? So it is a, if you are willing to actively surrender your heart and life to King Jesus, you will be broken to pieces I don't know that that's going to feel good. Some people preach a gospel and they say, come to, you know, everything's going to be great. Well, it will be in the end. If you hang in, it will be. If you will walk with him, it will be. All that's true. But your circumstances may be orchestrated to chisel and shape and form the fullness of King Jesus inside of you so that you can co-rule and co-reign with him for all eternity. Like it's a little like, It's not about now. It's not about your comfort. It's not about what you want or don't want or like or don't like. It's actually about him. And the question that you and I face is the same question they faced here. Are you going to throw yourself on the stone? Are you going to be willful, arrogant, do your own thing in your own will and way? And at the end of time, the stone's actually going to fall on you. And when I rock climb, or um, when I used to rock climb, uh, I would wear a Helmet. Most people think that you wear a helmet because you might. That's not why you wear a helmet. You actually wear a helmet when you're rock climbing. If you fall off a big cliff face, the helmet's not doing much good. (laughs) Just saying. But if you're standing at the bottom of a cliff and a rock about yay big, you know, half the size of a bowling ball falls down 
and hits you on the helmet, you're okay. Same principle here. You and I are faced with a God-given choice. Either we will throw ourselves on the stone and be broken to pieces, or in the times of the end, when Jesus returns, it will fall on us and it will crush us. Either way, brokenness will be the result. That's what it says. I promise you I will preach you just the gospel of Christ. Therefore, anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Isn't it amazing that they refused to see that he was Lord? Like they'd studied so much, they knew so much, and I would say to you they refused it because they didn't want to let go of their power, their greed, their finances, their job security, their old way of life, their respectability. It's all the same reasons we refuse to truly let go of a stranglehold on our lives, of control over our lives, and truly follow after King Jesus. Okay, so let's do some extrapolation here um, on what does this parable mean. Okay, one thing that I think you need to note is there's this idea of Israel's blessing and privilege. So um, God has taken care of, and when people get up and preach that in Jesus you'll have blessing and privilege, it's true. God has cared for. He cared for the, the Jewish people. They had so much blessing and privilege, and yet there's this chronic rejection that they've done of King Jesus. Can that be true of us Christians today? Yes. Can we get up and like give lip service to God and even come and sing some songs and even throw some money in the offering box and yet our hearts be turned from him? Yes. Can you even participate in things like kneeling or dancing or any number of, uh, you know, shenanigans that would indicate on the outside that your heart is surrendered, but inside have a heart that's hard? Yes. Which is a little scary. So who knows our hearts? Well, God. So I say, God, show me, sift me. Convict me. I think the other thing that begins to be seen so clearly here is God's discipline or his wrath is always in the bookends of his mercy. And in the bookends of his mercy, we have freedom to choose. Could these religious people have chosen to repent here? Yes. Did they? No. Were they being offered that same choice again with the apostle Peter in Acts 4? Yes. Did they choose it then? No. What a heartbreak. I think the other thing that you got to begin to see here is Jesus like throws down a gauntlet here, if you will, that with clarity that their sin is deliberate. Sin is a willful act on the part of human beings to harden our hearts towards God and do what we want to do when we want to do it. Like that is what Jesus is saying here is you tenants, you did what your actions um, were willful sin. The other thing that emerges here is you have the patience of this loving, kind God. And you have this, I I don't even know how to fully like phrase it other than God reprocesses what should have been anger or discipline into grace and kindness and love and peace and hope. So he, he he is absorbing their negativity and then offering them kindness, love, hope, peace, and they continue to refuse it. 
Then you have this um, clear claim of Jesus that he is God incarnate. He is the chief cornerstone. He is God incarnate, which means God in human form. And he is laying down that it is he is about to go to a cross and die. He's foretelling. Just like you guys took the son and killed him, I'm going to be killed. You're going to take me and kill me. He's foretelling everything that's happening for anyone who wants to listen and understand. Now, let me, let me mine three other things out of here, and, and a couple of these are a little sober. There's a theology of Jesus here. Theology is just like a, I don't know, it's like a seminary word for a biblical principle. Um, but there's a theology here of missed opportunity. This, this is sober. Let's just sit in it for just a second. Did God offer the Jewish leaders and the Jews at this point in history the place of being the epicenter from which the message of Jesus went forth to the nations? He did. And he kept offering it. And I think that's what the Apostle Peter is actually doing in Acts chapter 4. It's why I'm cross-referencing this. Is he offered them that they could become the very epicenter of um, Christianity. And in early Christian history, I don't have to go to it right now, but there's a shift from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And Antioch is known, of all Bible scholars, as the cradle of Christianity. And it's not that I think God didn't always intend Antioch to be a cradle, but I think he intended it to be a cradle alongside of the church in Jerusalem. But when a people consistently harden their heart against God, rejecting him, choosing their own will and their way, when he speaks to them and they harden their heart and go, I'm going to do it my way, on my terms, when I want, no, I'm going to reject you. It's, it's like, um, it's like our, my, my little two-year-old son, Ezra, when I tell him to do something and he looks at me and goes, no. no. And I sit back as the 42-year-old judgmental dad, and I go, oh, it's just, I can't believe you're like that. And then God speaks something to me, and what do I do? No. I'm telling you, I see me in my son. But I want you to, I want you to like, rest in something. Like, don't, we, we run from pain. We run from it. We spend all our time like trying to kill pain. Just sit in the pain of God's heart to love on the nation of Israel, to win the Jewish leaders, to pursue them, to provide for them, to win the hearts of the people, to lead them out of bondage, to, to provide, to protect, to love, to bless, to send, that they would become the epicenter from which all things went forth into the nations the hope of the gospel, and they continue to reject him so much so that the very epicenter of Christianity begins to shift from Jerusalem into Antioch. And there's this shift from what should have been the Jewish leaders to this little fisherman named Peter who's no nothing, and then this religious leader who gets humbled named Paul. And, and th there's, this, there's this transformation, but God offered it to the nation of Israel. He offered it to the religious leaders. Now, pivot. Is God offering today in this time certain things to you and to me? He is. Is it possible that we harden our heart out of our distrust or dislike for his will, his way, his timing, and we reject what he's doing? Yes. Sit in it, church. Sit in it. 
And then out of humility, go, Lord Jesus, don't let me miss what you have offered in my life. Convict me, discipline me if necessary, form me if necessary, shape me if necessary, do whatever is necessary to help me not be the willful two-year-old that says, no, come on. Second thing I want you to sit in. So the first thing, the theology of missed opportunity. Second thing, the theology of Jesus coming um, to us through our death, surrender, and exchange. Go back to the rock. Those who throw themselves on the rock will be broken. or cr- I think it's broken, wasn't it? Let's look back. Pastor, you don't know this verse? I don't. Let's look. I can't find it. Can somebody find it? Broken, broken to pieces. Okay, so there's a a choice to be broken before God, a choice to humble yourself before God versus the choice to be crushed. So the theology, if we were gonna use like big seminary words, we'd use incarnation, Jesus coming in full human form, and then we'd use substitutionary atonement, which which means I in my own sin am like these guys that killed the Son of God, I deserve to die, and yet God in the form of Jesus takes my place and he takes all of my, all the wrath that was intended for me, the death that I should have died, the punishment that I should have gotten is all extinguished on the person of Jesus. And now when I begin to appropriate the life of Jesus into the life of Michael, all God now sees is the life of Jesus. And I stand like righteous before God and so do you if you're in Jesus. So the second thing that emerges so powerfully here is Jesus is coming to us through our choice to surrender and die. It's like when Jesus said, if a seed will fall to the ground and dies, it'll produce many. It's the same idea that it is through our surrender, through our death, through taking up our cross, we experience the daily infilling life of Christ and the full power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. It's amazing. The stone, the Ben, excuse me, the son, Ben, that became the stone, E-Ben, if you'll surrender and give your life to his will and way, he will raise you up. And then the third thing that's also a little difficult to think about is, and you guys can come on out if you want, but it's a theology of eternal darkness. And I I don't even, you don't even, as a pastor, you don't even want to open this up. But he, Jesus leaves this question. Like what, Jesus asks, what is he going to do to those tenants? Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard, God, returns, what will he do to those tenants? I want you to sit in something again. Don't run from the pain. Many of us as Christians or people who are even young in Christ will ask, how could a loving, kind God send people to hell? I think it's the wrong question. I think a better question to ask in our little frail human finite minds is does a loving God allow people to reject his love and relationship with him and thereby choose eternal darkness? And the sobering reality is yes. Can I make my kids engage in deep, significant, abiding relationship with me? No. Relationship is freedom. 
And I'm convinced we're never more like God, the Prince of Peace, than when we extend freedom and invitation to people. And we're never more like the enemy than when we force or manipulate or control or cajole in order to get our will and way. So Jesus extends kindness. And I'm not saying God's not sovereign. That's a whole other thing that we would have to deal with. But his sovereignty, our freedom exists within the bookends of his sovereignty. His judgment exists within the bookends of his grace and mercy. But Jesus leaves this question. What's God going to do with these people at the end? And he doesn't solve it. He doesn't fix it. He just lets it sit. I want you to turn back to Acts 4. You will find God's love for you and you will find God's will for your life in the complex crucible of your potential and your limitations. Do I need to say that again? You will find God's love for you and you will find his will for your life in the complex crucible of your potential and your limitations. Flip the metaphor. Faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to God has to do with process. I call it the journey, the Jesus journey. You'll hear me say that a lot. It has to do with obedience to the Lord Jesus, whereas success has to do with a set of behavioral outcomes. And in a lot of, t- a lot of times, external success and, and internal formation or obedience and faith are diametrically opposed. As a church, hear me say this, we are not driving towards human goals and successes. I am driving us, steering us, moving us to the best of my ability towards faithfulness, obedience, surrender, abiding in the finished work of the Christ, continual Sabbath rest before God, the formation of King Jesus in and through each of us, the full infilling power of the Holy Spirit moment by moment and day by day. And if, that's, if that trajectory brings success, praise Jesus, so be it. But that will never be our goal. Our job is faithfulness and obedience, and the rest is up to King Jesus, the son that became the stone. Now, go back here. Peter is standing up, and he is rebuking a group of people who have set their sights on external behaviors and successes, and he is saying, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no under, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Church, if I can invite us into anything today is that you would choose not just to come to church at Saltbox, but that you would choose to abide and know and begin to risk full relationship and surrender to this God. That you would risk abiding in the presence of Jesus, letting him form you, trusting that when things feel bad or ugly or scary or anxiety producing or you're defensive or whatever you are, that he is working his will and way for your good and his glory always. That this loving, kind God is calling you to throw yourself on the son that became the chief cornerstone in surrender and give it to him. Stand with me. We're going to pray.
pray that you would take us as a church. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that casts ourselves upon the son that became the chief cornerstone. Father, I pray that you would change our view of who you are as God, that you would change our view, that we would see you as loving and kind and gracious and pursuing us in the difficulties and in the challenges and in the fears. Father, I pray that you would awaken in us an awareness of who you are, that we don't just meet you on Sunday morning, but we interact with you moment by moment, day by day, that we can listen to your voice, abiding in your presence 
God, I pray for this church that you would raise us up to be a church that embraces deep and significant abiding relationship with you moment by moment and day by day. And Father, I pray that when we come together on a Sunday morning, it wouldn't be to get fed, but it would be to celebrate that we're being fed. It would be to celebrate in an overflow that streams of living water would rise up and flow forth from within our being because King Jesus, the God eternal, dwells inside of us. Father, move on our church, in our hearts, in our lives, and we hand you the keys to our own kingdom. God, we give them to you. We open our hands. Have your way in our homes, with our kids, with our marriages, with our families, with our roommates, with our jobs. God, would you be glorified in and through our lives, and we surrender again before you, casting ourselves upon the stone that is the Son. Father, I pray that you would change us and form us and that King Jesus would be deeply formed within us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Prayer team, if y'all come up and be available, I'm gonna dismiss us in just a second. If you're here or you're online and you've never given your heart to this Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. I can walk you through a little pathway prayer that'll lead you there. Jesus is real. And he's pursuing you and loving you and leading you. And he will meet you moment by moment if you'll let him. As you go, go under the revelation of this loving father, this precious savior, and this spirit that wants to infill you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.